Welcome to another episode of the Anything Is Possible podcast. Today, I am with the most inspirational woman, Sophie Louise Hughes, who is a curve model, motivational speaker, and body confidence influencer. Now, there are a lot of people on Instagram that may give themselves those kind of titles, but Sophie's story is so individual and so inspirational, and I cannot wait to share it with you today. Sophie's story kind of starts with her baby nephew, Oscar. And so let me hand over to Sophie to introduce herself and tell you about Oscar. Thank you so much. What an intro. And I'm so excited to be here. So excited to dive in. So this is just the craziest story and probably the craziest thing that's ever happened to me in my life. And it's it's hard to even put it into words. And whenever I talk about it, it always feels like I'm sharing someone else's story. So when I was 25, my baby nephew, Oscar, was born. And unfortunately, he was born with a condition called biliary atresia, which basically meant that his bile duct wasn't working as it should to produce bile. And he had a cast procedure which is quite a small operation that was hopefully going to fix it and that he would be well and lead a normal life and unfortunately it didn't work and we found ourselves in a position as a family with Oscar where he was in the first few months of his life and fighting for his life and needing a liver donation so he was on what's called the cadaveric donor list which basically means that you're waiting for a deceased donor to become available and when you're a baby you need either a child's liver or a very small adult's liver. So kind of the pot of people that you're you're waiting to come through, and I know that sounds awful, but it's that's narrow. really how it gets, mm-hmm. is very narrow. So we were in a position as a family where we were waiting for a liver to become available and it was just completely unbearable, to be honest. It was one of the hardest things we've ever been through as a family, as you can imagine, and not something that you would ever wish on your worst enemy. He's just like the cutest little (laughs) thing, but so unwell, you know, bright yellow, bright yellow eyes, completely swollen tummy. And we nearly lost him on multiple occasions because of blood clots and other complications. So it was really, really challenging. And I was actually living in Australia at the time. So everything that I was learning, all the communication was via email or on the phone, FaceTime. So it was really, really tricky. And had you met him? I'd met the, him, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I actually flew back when he was two weeks old to surprise yeah. the family oh. um, because I'm so close with all my nieces and nephews yeah. and like not being here for them being born yeah. was just a big no for me. So I yeah. flew back, surprised everyone, yeah. got to meet him. It was a really cute video of that actually. Yeah. So I'd had like a few weeks of bonding with him, which yeah. was so lovely. And he was getting increasingly, you know, more and more unwell. And as a family, we were made aware of what's called the Living Liver Donor Program, bit of a mouthful, (laughs) Uh, basically where a living person can donate part of their liver to another living person, which to me was just absolutely mind-blowing. I think lots of people have heard of kidney donation, but liver donation was just a whole different thing. And I immediately put my hand up. I immediately wanted to be considered. And we were told straight from the set that it was very, very unlikely that I would be a match. Yeah. Uh, Why was that? Because there's so much that goes into it. So in order to be tested, I had to have like 20 different tests. Mm -hmm. I had MRI scans, CAT scans, PET scans. I had like smear tests and every single cell in your body needs to be perfectly healthy. You have to have immaculate health. And then on top of that, you have to be a perfect blood match and they make up like a 3D model of your liver and every vein has to be perfectly positioned to be able to take it out, has to be perfectly matched to his. So it's, it's really unlikely. So I'd flown back from Australia for all of these tests and even then they were 
were saying, you know, you're not going to be a match. Like, we yeah. have to prepare you. It's very unlikely you'll be a match. And they talk a lot. They really try to put you off. I think because it's such a big surgery, there's a one in 200 chance of death for oh, yeah. the donor. And I was 25. I was modeling full time. Yeah. It was just going to impact everything. So it's kind of the hospitals and the surgeon's responsibility to try and deter you and yeah. make sure that you're mentally stable enough to be able to do it. Because one of the biggest things is there's a one in 200 risk of death for me, but there's a one in 40 risk of death for Oscar. Wow. So you're going into this surgery knowing that there's a very substantial chance that you could wake up on the other side. You've got half a liver, a brand new scar, recovery to go through. And he's not, not made, made it. it. And can I ask at this point, how many people from the family got tested? Was it just you or did other? Yeah, so yeah. other people put their hands up. But because I was so slim at the time, I was a size yeah. six and I'd always been a size six. Yeah. My liver was likely to have no fat around it. It was likely to be very small. Yeah. On paper, I looked like a really good match yeah. for a baby. Yeah. So they chose me to start with. Right. And then if I wasn't a match, then they would have moved on to the next right. best candidate, yeah. basically. So we went through all of this testing. I'd come back from Australia and my brother initially, I'm his baby sister. He yeah. was like, no, no way. Yeah. There's no way I'm risking losing you and Oscar. Oscar I yeah. can't, I can't do it. Yeah. Like, it's too much. We're not doing it. We're not doing it. We're not doing it. And then basically we just got to a point where we really were running out of options. Yeah. And he had weeks, you know, it was, it was really close yeah. to the edge. And we got the call to say that I was a match. Wow. Which was just wild. How did you feel like was, and I hope you don't mind me asking this, mm. was the part of you that was like amazing, I'm going to save, potentially save his life, yeah. and was the part of you that was like, oh, you know, shit, I'm going to have to go through this operation, or was it all focused on the positive? So I think I had a really strong gut instinct from the start yeah. that I was going to be a match. And I don't yeah. know if everyone feels like that, yeah. but every time they said to me, you might not be a match, I thought, but I am. I am. I am a match. I know I'm a match. Yeah. I know that this is what I was put here to do. Yeah. I know that this is part of my journey. I yeah. am a match. Everything's wow. going to be okay. So I always had a really strong sense of that. And I hadn't cried at all in the whole sort of lead up to yeah. it, like all the meetings, everything. And I had what's called like a liver coordinator. She's called Katie. She was amazing. <laughs> what a job. And I know. <laughs> she was incredible. And she took me around to all my meetings and she was like, she was really there for support. Yeah. And I hadn't been emotional. I hadn't really showed yeah. like any emotion towards it. I was quite matter of fact about it. This is what we're doing. Everything's going to be fine. Yeah. And it wasn't until we went down to surgery and I'd said goodbye to Oscar, yeah. said goodbye to all my family and, <gasps> you know, going through on oh. my own. And I remember going through like the big double doors and like giving my mom a hug for the last time and everything or like, you know, in your head, you really yeah, yeah. are thinking like that at that point, giving my mom a hug and just thinking, you know, what what's going to lie on the other side of this surgery? Yeah. What am I walking into? And walking through the double doors and just being like, oh, and I had an almighty breakdown. Yeah, I was oh. 25 and finally just let out all of the emotion. Yeah. And Katie, the liver coordinator, was like, thank God. Uh, yeah. <laughs> thank God. Yeah. Oh my God, we needed this. She yeah. was like, it's okay. It's okay to show your yeah. emotion. It's okay to be upset. It's terrifying. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's terrifying. You've been so brave. Uh, so it was good to kind of get that emotion out. So even when I was being put to sleep, I was sobbing. Like, oh. I was really, really emotional at that point. But up until that point, I hadn't really okay. thought about risk of death, risk of anything. Not it was just like, this is what we're going to do. And for 
the majority of people that will not understand this operation yeah. are you you go under they take half your liver is oscar near you like what what ha- you know what yeah, happens I know. it's crazy yeah. so quite often you will be in rooms next to each other yeah. but with leeds setup they actually have a dedicated children's hospital yeah. so we were in hospitals about two miles apart oh wow really so they initially opened me up yeah and i've got like a seven eight inch scar down my stomach yeah. so they sort of like slice you in half basically pin your ribs up so they can get access to the liver so it's really quite graphic yeah and then they take they took my left lobe of my liver out which is about 40 percent of my liver and what they do is they get my liver out and they say okay it looks good we're good to go and they then at that point will start surgery on oscar on the other side and then they take the liver via ambulance to Oscar. That's nuts, isn't it? It's the thing that like your liver was like trying to... I've actually got photos of it in a bowl. <laughs> no way! Yeah. And oh I didn't want God. to see them for a really no. long time. They take all these pictures for research. Yeah. And then Katie emailed me. She was like, do you want to see the pictures of myself open <gasps> with my liver in and then my liver in a bowl, no liver inside me. Oh. I remember looking at them and being like, Oh my god. You're really God. brave to look at those. It was, yeah, it was, Probably um, part of the healing process, which sure, will obviously. Yeah. I think trying to make it feel more real. Yeah, yeah. For sure. So there's so much to dive into, but let's, yeah. let's so we'll not leave Oscar for a minute, but just Oscar's to doing think really it, well, yeah. by the way. Yeah, I yeah, to get yeah. To yeah. Say just that. some people yeah. like, that's yeah. a cliffhanger. Yeah, yeah. He's doing really, really well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you, um, the, he, you wake up mm. and what do they do they know Oscar is going to be okay at that point because I imagine that was one of the when you know you're okay and you've woke up yeah. Like, yeah so I woke up and I was in I think because of how I fell asleep yeah. and because I'd been under for nine hours mm. I had a few complications nothing too major but it just took them a bit longer to sew me back up so I'd been under quite a long time and then Oscar's surgery on the flip side was actually a bit quicker than they thought right. so by the time I came round the very first thing that came out of my mouth was is he okay and Katie was there. Katie's like a big feature in this yeah, episode of this podcast. Yeah, yeah. But Katie was there and she said, yeah, he's doing really well. Oh, wow. So I just remember, I don't remember anything then for about two days. I just went back to sleep. I was in intensive care. Yeah. And but I just knew in my head, yeah, he's doing really well. That's all I kept telling myself. He's doing really well. He's doing really well. And I just focused on my recovery for a few days until I was well enough. I think it was about day five and they took me over in an ambulance to be able to see him. Oh, so he, in terms of this, like so many compartments, this, yeah. but so you know he's well, so he's in hospital recovering. Yeah. Um, and what's his stay in hospital? Like how long was he in hospital for? for so he'd room? been in hospital since he was three weeks old, pretty oh, much. Wow. Yeah, so he hadn't really left. And then he had, I think he stayed in hospital for about another month post-surgery. Yeah. And then he came home and he had two to three months complete isolation because his body was so fragile and he needed yeah. to make sure that he didn't get any germs. So really yeah. like no one could see him, he couldn't go anywhere. So yeah. a, really the first year of his life was incredibly turbulent, yeah. but yeah. he was alive and he had a new liver and he was really blessed compared to other children in that position. And we were really blessed as a family that we had someone that was a match because there's lots of people, lots of babies all around the world that, that do die because there isn't a donor available. Wow. So talk us about the, f- the first time you saw him after. I bet that yeah. was so emotional. It was so emotional and I was off my rocker on morphine. <laughs> <laughs> so I remember just being wheeled in and I like I could barely walk. I didn't have a clue what was going on, but just seeing him. And I remember so vividly looking at him and for the first time he had white eyes, and not <gasps> yellow eyes. Oh. And yeah, it was incredibly emotional. All of the nurses were crying. Everyone was just overcome with emotion really because you've come so far to that point that yeah. it's hard to even believe that 
that that's happened and that he's well and that you're okay and it's like this is it almost feels too good to be true and he still had a bumpy ride ahead and yeah. you know he will take anti-rejection drugs for the rest of his life and he'll have to be incredibly careful for the rest of his life but he's here and he's got the chance to lead a, a healthy life and that's what's important so that was going to be my question before we kind of come on to to your journey so yeah. he's seven and a half he yes yeah yeah and so how is he does he live a normal life you mentioned anti-rejection drugs yeah. what are they yeah so he takes drugs every day basically to make sure that his body doesn't uh, recognize the foreign object ah, in his okay. body because it's my liver and not his liver yeah. effectively yeah and so if his body was to recognize that then it would start to reject it and okay. at that point he would need another transplant so there's every chance he could live a long healthy life just with my liver but there's yeah. also a really strong chance that he will need another transplant at some point in his life right so he li leaves a normal life he's a goalkeeper which is probably the worst oh. position possible having balls kicked his liver. yeah yeah <laughs> um but he's doing really well he's really happy he's cheeky uh, and he used to when he was little always say he got his liver from Australia <laughs> I got oh. my liver from Australia <laughs> <laughs> and have you two got like a really special bond yeah really yeah. special it's actually our seven year liverversary oh. on Friday so I'll go and pick him up from school and, and we'll oh. celebrate that which is really oh, lovely what a lovely story yeah. so your recovery um, you were nine hours in surgery mm -hmm. um, what uh, just talk us in detail through that yeah, harrowing, to be honest. The hardest thing I've ever gone through in my life. It was intense. Um, I was in intensive care for a few days and I had a really bumpy recovery. I couldn't stop being sick. And I just, there was just a lot. I had a bad reaction to the morphine. Yeah. My scar was stretching. Well, I bet was, if you were being sick, that was, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was really bad being sick and like had a really nasty cough as well. Oh. Just, I think from just being in surgery for so long, yeah. your body's just yeah. given up. And also trying to regrow a liver. Yeah, of course. <laughs> which is, yeah. Um, yeah, not for the faint of heart. And then I spent... Three and a half months in the UK, because like I say, I was living in Australia yeah. at the time. So How spent, long in hospital? Um, I was in hospital for eight days. Yeah. And then I went home. But really, when I went home, I was still, you know, was, yeah. sometimes they send you home from hospital and you think, should I really be yeah. here? Like, I'm yeah. not in a good way. Yeah. Um, so they, they sent me home. I was at home for three and a half months recovering. And I mean, I couldn't. Couldn't lift a kettle, couldn't wash my own hair, couldn't bath myself. I was, I really needed a lot of support and yeah. I underestimated that. Yeah. Really underestimated how long it would take me because I was really fit and healthy at the time yeah. and I thought I would bounce back, back a little bit and I just didn't at all. And it took me, I would say a year until I had my first day where I thought, I feel normal. Really? Yeah. And was that cognitively, physically, everything? Both. Like, yeah. yeah, for yeah. sure. I think it took me a long time to really process. And I know we'll dive into that in terms yeah. of my body and all yeah. the changes that I went through. Mentally, it took me a long time. But actually physically, to just be able to go and do a Pilates class or yeah. do the things that I love and feel normal yeah. and not constantly be thinking, my body's not where it was yeah. a, a yeah. good year. Yeah. And um, what are... Like, obviously that was the, the recovery from the operation. And what are the, um, were you told of any like long-term side effects or very specific side effects yeah. that could happen post-op? Yeah, I mean, there was loads of like, risk of this, risk of like, like I said before, they really tried to prepare you. So yeah. there was lots of things that were really quite terrifying. Yeah. Like, all sorts of things. But the main things that they said were the average person gains between 10 and 15 kilos post-surgery yeah. um, because your liver's responsible for, you know, breaking down your fatty acids and, it, it plays a big role in that. So you take yeah. half of it out and yeah. your metabolism is going to struggle. Ah, so it's your metabolism. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So they told me about weight gain. They told me uh, about scar pain and scar tissue yeah. and things like that. But there's nothing too major because you're 
liver does regenerate. So yeah. if you're lucky and you have a good recovery and you don't have any complications, yeah. you lead a normal life for yeah. the most part. Yeah. Um, so we'll come to the weight because only because that is obviously part yeah, of your journey. Of um, you mentioned before you were a size six, yes. you were a model. Yeah. Um, so what was your journey to becoming a model? Um, and size six is very slim. Yeah. Was that was that because you were a model? Is it because you'd had issues with weight? Like, just tell us that piece before we get on to the next. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I'd say from being 13, I suffered with disordered eating. Yeah. Started in high school, which I think is quite common. Yeah. And it was very much a need for control. Yeah. It was something that I could be in control of in my teenage years where you quite often feel like the things around you are spiraling yeah. and you have no control. And yeah no concept of self or where you're going or, or yeah. what else you can control. So for me, it was food. And I remember really specifically where it started. I think I'd been exposed to a lot of things within the media and magazines and stuff. Yeah. So I'd seen a lot of things anyway. But when I got my first boyfriend, yeah. like my first proper little boyfriend, who used to hold hands in the canteen yeah. and things. And we all used to eat lunch in the form room. There's yeah. a big group of us. And all of a sudden uh, I had this boyfriend and I didn't want to eat in front of him. And right. that was where it started. And it really? was such a small thing looking back, but that really escalated from there and snowballed from there because I didn't want to eat in front of him. So I didn't eat lunch. And then I didn't eat lunch ever. And so I lost weight. And then I liked the fact that I'd lost weight and I got addicted to that. So then I didn't eat dinner. And then, and it just became oh, a whole wow. a whole thing. So... And did did anyone pick up on that, like friends or family, or did they just no. think, oh, you're growing up, you're watching, yeah. Yeah, I remember my dad, my mom had suffered with the disorders eating when she was younger oh. as well. So I think it was very triggering for her and I don't think she really knew how to address yeah. it or where to even start. Yeah. And I remember my dad, my mom and dad had separated. Yeah. My dad dropping me off after one weekend and saying, I'm really worried about Soph. Like she looks so, yeah. she doesn't look well, like what's going on? Yeah. My mum was like, no, you know, she eats, like she's fine. And I was very clever, very, very yeah. clever. So I would say, I don't want dinner because I ate so much at lunch and I had cake and I had this. Yeah, and, da, 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 yeah. and so I'd get away with it that way. Or I'd eat dinner, but I'd just flush it down the toilet, oh, really? put it in a plastic bag and drop it in the bin on the way to school the next morning. So I was crafty, I was clever. And it was, the internet was really starting to be a big thing. Yeah. There was all these websites with tips on really? what to do and how to get away with it. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I... I think people recognized it, but I don't think there was the educational awareness that there is now yeah. to know what to do about it. So my dad had said, you know, she she's disappearing in front of us effectively. Yeah. And I overheard this conversation and I remember thinking, okay, I need to get more clever. I need to eat more around my dad so he doesn't worry. Oh, wow. So, you know, as a 13 year old, you're really smart yeah. and you know how to manipulate them, yeah. which is what it was about because I just wanted to carry on and I wanted to to get away with it for as long as I could without having to have a conversation. And then my friends at school, and we talk about this now actually with one of my girlfriends who I'm still close with mm. from that time, I just didn't eat at school and that was just a thing. So we had yeah. two queues. We had the hot food queue and the cold food yeah. queue. And two of the girls would get in the cold food queue, two of the girls would get in this queue yeah. and I would get the table because I wasn't eating. Oh, wow. Soph doesn't eat lunch. And it was just like, just Soph doesn't eat. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah. just accepted, it wasn't, I don't think they know what, knew what to say or like I say had the awareness to even begin to discuss it with me and you say disordered eating mm. rather than eating disorder yeah. is there a difference between disordered eating anorexia like I don't think there's a difference and I think you would label it as anorexia I just don't necessarily think for me giving it a label yeah. is something that I feel the need to do or yeah. want to do I was never yeah. hospitalized with anorexia yeah. and so 
it's probably just a mental thing for me, to be honest, and a yeah. lack of acceptance of that's what it was. But yeah, yeah very yeah, much yeah. so. Yeah. yeah. So is that what, le- how, like, how did you get into modelling then? I mean, yeah. you're absolutely beautiful, so I'm sure you were Thank spotted. You. But, like, how did that journey? Yeah, so I was tiny I mean I was probably like a size four at this point and I was in London on a weekend with my mom yeah five foot nine absolutely teeny tiny and I got scouted uh on the street in London basically and I hadn't considered modeling that was the first time I'd ever been scouted it wasn't something that I'd ever thought about or something that I thought I wanted to do I looked at a lot of models online as what at the time was called like thinspiration yeah oh yeah terrifying yeah and you remember like pro Anna and that whole thing it was yeah yeah, it was a whole thing and but I'd never considered that that was what I wanted to do I'd never thought I'd make a career out of that I mean I was 15 I had no idea and at the time I wanted to be a criminal lawyer so I just wrote down what did you want to do (laughs) criminal lawyer that's what I wanted to do basically just wanted to stand in court and boss people yeah. <laughs> and then I found out there was loads of paperwork and I thought, no, I don't want to no, do that. Yeah. <laughs> but I got scouted and I really just got catapulted into this world, which was possibly the worst thing that could have happened to me at the time in terms of my health and my because mental health. Because where you at mentally and then yes. you suddenly... and then all of a sudden it became a numbers game because I was on this board of all these other women yeah. and being put forward for jobs and I could actually go onto the website and see what everyone's measurements were and it became this obsession with wanting to be the smallest and every job that I didn't book, because you don't book every job, yeah. every job that I didn't book in my head was because I was too fat. So I needed to lose weight or I needed to be slimmer than the girl who had booked it. Yeah. So it just really fed into the obsession. And the industry at the time was a really dangerous place and had no protocols in place to protect people. I mean, I was 15 and I would go in and they do my measurements and say, you need to lose two inches by next week if you want to be put oh. forward for this runway. Why don't you do an apple diet? Do you know, it's so funny you say that because in, I, think, I can't remember what episode, but in season one, we mm. interview Anna Lahari, who's... Yes. Um, Barry's Bootcamp, mm-hmm. uh, master trainer, very much part of the founding of Barry's Bootcamp in the UK, and she was model. Yeah, and um, she said they were just the, the cabbage soup they were all told yeah. to have, and that she, she was like, we were tiny, and all we were allowed to eat for like before a shoot was yeah. cabbage, and like. So I know what you're saying. Like I've yeah. heard it from you, you. You read about it and you think, oh, whatever. But it's it's genuinely 100%. and it's it was so normalised at the time. Like you'd be on a shoot, there was no lunch, so you didn't get fed on a shoot. Yeah, you were modelling, yeah. and you could be doing a 16 hour day and you're not being fed. Like I used to always have an emergency banana in my bag just so that I didn't yeah. pass out, yeah. just to put something in my body. But that was just very standard and very normal. And I think that really then fed into my mindset that what I was doing was the most normal thing in the world because now I was. So surrounded by people who thought exactly the same as I did and I was praised when I lost weight yeah and I'd get shots back and they'd be like you look amazing yeah. and I'd be like because I'm not eating for a week Yay. yeah you must have been so tired exhausted I had no energy exhausted absolutely exhausted and I never really I never worked out in terms of like lifting weights or doing anything to add anything to my body it was always how can I just do cardio how can I get on the treadmill and just run how can I sweat and burn the most calories that I can possibly burn rather than now my mindset of how can I feel strong and how can I support my body into old age and how can I feel amazing it wasn't about that it was just how can I burn a thousand calories or how can I burn that banana that I've just eaten. So what? So as you start to model and your parents were, certainly your dad, they were very concerned about your mm. weight. Did those concerns grow the more you were modelling? Because you were probably growing up, but staying slim. Yeah, I think I was growing up, but sort of growing off in my own direction by that right. point. And I yeah. moved down to London and then I was going to university. So I don't think the concerns were there in the same way. And I yeah. think I always... 
I always kept enough weight on me that it wasn't like I was about to drop dead. Yeah. So it wasn't an immediate concern. Yeah. But I certainly look back at images and just think, wow, like I was so unhealthy and so unhappy. Yeah. And that went on until until 25, until liver surgery, really. And so you say you were unhappy. So were you, were you were the parts of the modeling you enjoyed or so was it a bit of a battle in your head like I'm loving doing the modeling and the job but actually the hard work it's taking to keep this slim is making me unhappy or like how did that all work I think it wasn't necessarily conscious if that makes sense yeah I think it's all retrospective that I look back yeah. and realize that that was how I felt like now I look back at a picture of myself and realize that I spent three hours trying to get ready for that event and crying because I looked disgusting. And you, you look back, back on these it, things yeah. and you think, God, like I, I just, my mental health was really not great. Yeah. Then, but I didn't necessarily realize that at the time. And I didn't necessarily have the tools to understand what was going yeah. on with my yeah. mental health. And again, like I say, I don't think there was the same awareness then that yeah. there is now. You know, it was normal for us to all be getting ready for a night out and calling ourselves fat and disgusting. Yeah. And, and that, was, yeah. that was the kind of energy then and no one ever called me out on it yeah. no one ever picked up on it and it sounds like it there wasn't some deep-rooted like thing that had happened mm -hmm. to you to trigger it it was just normal life and then getting a kick from um oh I feel a bit thinner and oh I've had a compliment about that and yeah. it kind of fuels the ego a little bit I guess 100%. doesn't it, it yeah. didn't it didn't come from a trauma it just crept up on me really gradually as yeah. do a lot of mental health issues yeah. I think and then all of a sudden it's a crisis yeah so you moved to Australia age 21 and what did you move to Australia for so I went traveling after I finished my degree I went traveling I went all over Asia I went to New Zealand Australia and then I ended up falling in love in Australia yeah. and staying and I ended up being there for nine years which wow. was never part of the plan but it was <laughs> such an incredible adventure and yeah so much fun absolutely no regrets but it was um, yeah, nine years in Australia, oh, wow. nine years in Sydney. And were you modeling over there as well? Yeah. And was that full time? Modeling, doing a bit of social media, public yeah. speaking, and then a few other bits, a few other jobs here and there. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you're over there, obviously 25. Yeah. You've talked us through where <clears throat> you were to get to, to doing the transplant. So for anybody, even that hasn't got disordered eating, mm. the thought of putting on weight as a woman yeah. is quite terrifying yeah. um so obviously they were telling you at this point doing the transplant this was going to be likely mm. how does someone that is so driven by their weight get mm. their head around that i mean to be honest i think transplant was the well transplant definitely was the best thing that ever happened to me because it left me with no choice but to learn to accept myself yeah. and i think this is why I'm so passionate about what I do because most people will never go through a huge life-changing event like that yeah. that will allow them to go on the journey that I've been on. And yeah. that's why I talk about it so much. And that's why I try and help people because I think it's really, really difficult to even begin to get your head around it or begin to accept it. And like yeah. you say, I was so driven by my weight, driven by the way I looked. And then transplant just flipped everything on its head because it reminded me, how short life is yeah it kind of just woke me up I felt like I'd just been shook awake and yeah. then after surgery when I gained all of this weight I still had a lot to come to terms with yeah. but I think because of what I'd been through and because I'd had the opportunity to be able to save Oscar's life it kind of paled in comparison yeah it didn't feel as important yeah. but yes for any woman gaining weight or body changes aging all of these things they can be absolutely terrifying yeah and i think what we have to remember is that it is a constant 
work in progress. You have to constantly commit to be kinder to yourself. You have to constantly commit to working on your self-talk every single day, to putting good practices into place, to be able to navigate it and to be able to genuinely wake up in the morning and understand that the way you look and your body is the least exciting thing about you. It's so important to take care of your health and nourish yourself and make sure that you're strong, but it's the least exciting, least important, least the least thing that we should be talking about yeah so you um you mentioned that you you know you were told you're going to have the weight gain because of the liver function yeah and the drop in metabolism and i think i've heard you say that 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 sort of the weight gain came quite quickly very quickly yeah and it mentally that was a challenge for you can you talk us through that yeah so i think i'm 25 i've gone from being a size 6 to a size 14 16 in the space of probably a year and a half which is crazy. I never in a million years thought that I would be a size 16. I'd never envisioned myself in a bigger body. I'd never thought about it. The thought of curve modeling was just so far removed from where I was that that was such a huge shift. And then I also had this massive scar. And at first my scar was obviously quite dark and like hadn't healed at all. So it was very obvious. So if I was on the beach, obviously I lived in Australia, if I was on the beach in a bikini, people were staring because it was massive and it was, you know, right there. So I just felt very alien in my own body. And when I looked in the mirror, I didn't recognize myself at all. And that was really, really challenging. And I think because I had uh, struggled with my weight prior, it, it definitely came with so many layers to it. Yeah. And I think really for me, social media, and this is why I'm so passionate about social media and the positive sides of social media, social media helped me heal because I found women who had a body like my new body and I thought they looked beautiful. Just a reminder that the best way you can support the show is to subscribe, leave us a five-star rating and a little review for what you think of our show wherever you listen to your podcasts. It only takes a second and may seem like a small thing, but it helps us rank in the podcast charts, find new listeners and reach even more amazing guests. So with your review, you're actually helping to improve the Anything Is Possible show. And I would see them wiggling and jiggling and their cellulite and and just loving life and yeah. full of life and so much just just fun they were having yeah. fun and I would look at them and think that they looked incredible and I started to realize that if I could look at them and think they looked incredible then over time and with a lot of work I could think that about myself as well wow so talk to us about the lot of work because this can apply what you you've done for yourself mentally can be applied to so many situations, not just weight gain. So what was the work that you did? So I think really committing to being kinder to myself Mm -hmm. was really important. And like you say, this isn't just weight, this is anything. Yeah, We are our own worst critics. And my self-talk about my body was awful. I would never speak to you, my best friend, (laughs) my mom, anyone else like that, that would be horrific. I would expect no one to ever speak to me again if I spoke to them in the way about their body that I was speaking to myself. And I think realizing that and committing to stopping that and saying, I will not speak to myself like that. I will speak kindness into my body. And when I look in the mirror, I will practice gratitude rather than picking it apart. I will stop grabbing at my hips or lifting my boobs or any of these things that we do with our bodies. I commit to stopping doing that. And instead I will look in the mirror and I will express gratitude and gratitude has changed everything for me in every aspect of my life but particularly with my body because I'm so grateful that my body was able to save a life that's where I start I put my hand on my scar and I just think 
whatever it is that you're picking apart, you wish your boobs were perkier, is so irrelevant in the grand scheme of things when your body, your body, my body, is physically capable of saving a life or giving birth. It's incredible what our bodies can do. And I think if you hone in on the gratitude of that, your whole perspective can change. So gratitude was huge for me and forgiveness as well. And again, this can apply to anything, but forgiving myself for all the years that I had spent being so cruel and so negative and having such a negative self-talk was really important because I had to leave that behind. And I had to say, that's who you were there and that's how you spoke to yourself and that's okay. I, I apologize to my body, I apologize to myself for being so cruel and so awful, but now we're gonna start a new chapter and we're gonna move forward from it. So gratitude and forgiveness for me have been absolutely huge. And in terms of gratitude, and it's something that I am um, struggling with actually at the moment it, yeah. for different reasons. And, and and I said actually that to my, I've been for coffee with my mum and dad this morning and said, um, I need to be more grateful. I need to start being grateful because for some reason I'm focusing on a lot of the negative. Yes. So I, I did used to do the right five things down every day, yeah. but I feel like with you, it's gone a bit deeper than that. So if you could explain like, your best practice of gratitude, what does that involve? So I guess if I give you a, a visual representation of yeah. what I do, so when I have a negative thought come into my head, yeah. I literally take, I don't know why, but it's a rounders bat or a baseball bat. I love that, <laughs> I'm very visual. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I literally take a bat in my head and I'm like, I am batting that thought away yeah. and I'm gonna replace it with gratitude. So it's getting really, really conscious over your thought processes and what's coming into your head yeah. and then immediately replacing it with gratitude. Yeah. And the more you do this, it just becomes your practice. Yeah. So on the way here, like I'd had a really busy morning, there's so much going on, I had so much in my head. And in the drive over, I was just thinking about all the things I'm grateful for, yeah. doing my affirmations and just sort of resetting my mind because I didn't want it filled with busyness or filled with, I'm too busy, I've got this, or this is stressing me out. Why is this client not paid this invoice? Why is it da 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 da, yeah. da all this noise that we get? Yeah. Instead it was, I'm so grateful that I'm here. I'm so grateful that I have this opportunity today. I'm so grateful that I get to come and speak to Holly and do something yeah. that absolutely lights me up. So I think for me, it's that visual, like yeah. really committing in your own brain that when those thoughts come in, they are gonna get a giant bat out yeah. and and you're going to replace it immediately with what am I grateful for? Yeah, yeah. So that you obviously did all this work and we'll come to how that changed your career in a moment. But I think what I'm interested in is when did it get to the point where, and I know you're saying you're still working on it, but when did you eventually re reach a point of acceptance, would you say? Yeah, and it was, I didn't wake up one day and just love myself. But I think I woke up one day and realized that there'd been two or three months since I'd had a day where I hated myself. And that was wow. huge, huge, because I spent every single day hating myself or hating my body, certainly, for 10 years. And then all of a sudden I'd got to a place where I'd been like, I can't remember the last time I cried because of my body. I can't remember the last time I put clothes on and felt horrendous. I can't remember the last time I canceled plans because I didn't want to go because of how I felt or how I looked. And that was huge. So it was a compound effect of doing these things on a daily basis, being kinder to myself, affirmations, gratitude, forgiving myself, all of the things that I was doing, following the right people on social media, just replacing all these negative things in my brain with all of these positive things. Yeah. And anytime social media is a great representation because anytime anything pops up that I don't like, that doesn't serve me, that doesn't encourage me to be my best self, block and delete. 
Yeah. And I have nothing on my social media that doesn't make me feel incredible. My social media is my happy place. Yeah. And I choose to fill it with women who look like me, women who inspire me, women whose bodies inspire me, women who have a positive message in whatever way it is. Yeah. Whereas before I was following swimwear models who were a completely unattainable body type for me. Yeah. And it's a very personal experience, yeah. but it was very unattainable for me and it didn't make me feel good. Yeah. So for me, it was about filling my brain, filling my life, filling my social media with all of these things that make me feel good. Yeah. And then over time that compounded. And like I say, I woke up one day and was kind of like, I can't remember the last time I felt like shit about yeah. myself. This is, this is incredible. Yeah. Wow. I've got like all these questions popping in my head. So I'm just having to write them down so I don't forget to ask you. Love it. Um, and so you obviously then, you know, your passion and your your career was modeling. Yes. So I guess at one point you were thinking, maybe you were thinking it's over for me. 100%. So how did we flip that into I'm going to be a curve model? So I stopped modeling for quite some time and then I started doing social media basically. Yeah. So I started, I'd followed these influencers, like I say, who were really inspiring me and they had bodies like my new body. And I thought, well, if they can do it, I can do it. And I kind of did it for myself. And then it led to where I am now. Yeah. And I love that really, because I didn't set out to make a career out of it. I set out to accept myself yeah. more. And I thought if these women can accept themselves, I can accept myself. Yeah. So I started doing that. And then I got picked up by a curve agency in Sydney, Bella, yeah. who were absolutely incredible. And they really nurtured me along the journey of Curve. And I found myself just surrounded by the most incredible people. Yeah. And Curve modeling for me, particularly in Sydney, but in the UK as well, we're certainly getting there, is just a whole different world. Oh. Like the best vibes you can possibly imagine. And I remember doing my first lingerie campaign for bras and things. And there was like 50 people on the crew, it was huge. And I remember thinking, oh my God, here I am in my knickers with all my jiggly bits out, feeling fab. And we had Whitney blasting and everyone's cheering me on and saying how incredible I looked. We had a massive lunch. We ate, we had breakfast, lunch, yeah. dinner. And I just had so much fun. And I remember thinking, this is how it should feel because yeah. I feel more confident in myself than I've ever felt yeah. as a curve model, which is not something that I ever uh, expected. But it was just because I got to a place where I finally accepted myself. Did it feel like a weight was lifted off your shoulders? Massively. Massively. Yeah. 100%. Because it, it's a little bit like, um, so I've, I've talked about having OCD and one of the therapies you have to do yes. for OCD is exposure therapy. Yeah. And it's almost like you have to literally face your worst fears. And the more that you face your fears and you realize that the worst won't happen. And I'm just, I mean, obviously my OCD was totally different, but I'm just imagining that like moment where you go, like you're literally taking your clothes off, but you're actually taking so much more off like I can imagine you just felt like oh. you're so right yeah. and I think for me that's what social media was as well it yeah. was like I've got this new belly roll and when people take pictures of me and I see it I feel disgusting and I think all these horrible things I'm trying to learn to accept it but actually what if I just posted my worst angle and then everyone's seen the worst bit of me anyway it can't get any worse than yeah. that and then everyone responded so positively and I was like is that really the worst angle or do I just look happy and comfortable and content yeah and it really led on from there so you're right I guess it was exposure therapy yeah. in a different way it was like you know what the worst things that you could say or think about me I'm just going to put out there and yeah. let's see what happens yeah. and then I got a really positive response as yeah. you often do yeah. or it's not as terrifying as you think it yeah. will be and then it it catapults from there it's so funny isn't it because it's like as a um you know I, I was always praised for being slim when I was little yes. so I you know I do work hard 
to keep slim, but I'm, I feel like I've got quite good balance. But for me, it's a silly thing, but like things like when I first got a bit of cellulite, it was like the worst thing that could have happened. Like it was just, it, and it's so ridiculous. Yeah. And, but it, you know, you associate you. it with, I'm not perfect. What if, oh no, people are now going to look at me and go, oh, look at Holly. You know, yeah. she's let herself go. You know, it's stupid thoughts. And I remember going for the, on holiday for the first time after COVID and, um, and, because obviously in COVID, like you say, your social media is all this stuff that you're looking at. And actually getting around a pool and going, oh. Yeah. Um, People have normal bodies. Yeah, and I remember I'm this. normal. Yeah. And I remember this group of girls that were gorgeous, like all in, you know, the gorgeous cut-out bikinis. Yeah. And they just looked super glamorous around the pool and gorgeous. And there was this one girl that stood out to me and she was dead tall and she had all this confidence. And she had, she had, she was young, but she had cellulite. It must have been like genetic. Yeah. And she looked gorgeous and I was like what and everyone was like she was chatting to guys and everything like this and I thought what an amazing she is obviously somebody that's complete maybe doesn't even notice it mm -hmm. and it's just completely like just quite, yeah. yeah and I think when you say you were looking at people and thinking it's almost like I want to feel like they do rather than I want to look like as 100%. in you'd be looking at curve models going I want to feel as confident as them and that's why I kind of mentioned the feeling because I resonated with it in terms of um it must be so freeing to suddenly go those shackles that were around me like I'm just gonna let them go and, yeah. and actually feel better for it yeah 100% I absolutely love that and I think People always say that to me when social media, when I post sort of like my before and after pictures that I do yeah. where I'm like super posed and sucking in yeah. and like looking modelly yeah. versus just relaxing yeah. and drinking my Fanta lemon and having yeah. my lays on the beach, which is yeah. reality, right? Yeah. And people always say to me, you look so much happier. And it's because I am. I yeah. feel so much happier in my skin when I'm just able to be who I am. Yeah. And I think it's really beautiful when you see someone who has accepted themselves. And like you say with this girl on holiday, yeah. she's just in a headspace of she's been able to accept herself yeah. and understand that her cellulite is really just not that big a deal or yeah. important or in the grand scheme of her life, yeah. no one is going to stand up at a funeral and talk about her cellulite. You know, no one cares. Yeah. We've all got cellulite. 90% yeah. yeah. of women have cellulite. Yeah. It's yeah. the most normal thing in the world. Yeah. But social media and the media in general makes us think it's not. Yeah. And so seeing these people who are confident and feel comfortable in their own skin is so empowering yeah. for other women. Yeah. And it has this roll-on effect. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Um, so um, with curve modeling does that open up different um sort of parts of the industry that you wouldn't have done before like what for curve modeling what kind of brands do you work for what industries yeah for sure I think it's very similar and I think we've got to a space and as well I have to be very clear I'm a size 14 16 yeah 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 so a lot of people when we talk about curve modeling or when I say what I do for work I'm a curve yeah. model and they're like yeah 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 it's crazy yeah. and I think at some point and this was why I loved my Sydney agency so much actually yeah. because they just had models so yeah they just had yeah. models they had size yeah. 6 models they had size 20 models yeah and it was just modeling. it wasn't given a label no there was no label but here it's still really important I feel like I still have to emphasize that I'm a curve model yeah. and then people are like really yeah um but I think Curve modeling is very much the same now, which I absolutely love. Curve yeah. girls are being booked for exactly the same campaigns. Yeah. We're working with exactly the same clients. There's lots of high-end clients that are doing curve models yeah. as well. And it's just becoming a lot more normal. Yeah. And I think a lot less just trying to tick a box, which is what curve modeling was initially. Yes. Initially, it was just like, okay, have we got a curve model? Have we got a mixed race model? And have we got a white size six model? Yeah. Done. Yeah. That was the campaign. Yeah. Every campaign you ever saw. And now I actually think there's more focus on not just diversifying for the sake of diversifying yeah. and trying to tick a box, yeah. but actually just let's represent women. Yeah. What do women look like? Yeah. And I really 
hope I see that that's where the industry's going, but I really hope that that's the direction yeah. that the industry continues to go in. Yeah, probably for you that there's work that you can do, isn't there, around the fact of losing, dropping that curve label 100%. and it becoming modelling. And with my scar as well, I think that's really important because I get so many messages on social media from women saying, this is the first time I've ever seen a scar like yours or yeah. a brand like Simply Be, for example, is one of the brands I'm working with at the moment yeah. and they'll post me in a bikini and the comments are like, oh my God, like she's look at a scar, that's beautiful. I've yeah. got a scar like that or yeah. they've got a C-section scar or whatever it might be. Yeah. And they don't see it represented. And that's the key. It's just representation. Yeah. Regardless of what diversity we're talking about, yeah. representation is the most important thing. Yeah. And for me, being able to represent women with scars and women with curves is really, really important. Yeah, yeah. Um, so um, then you've kind of stepped into like, and I know you were doing this in Australia, but the motivational um, piece. So... Is that come post-operation, the motivational piece as well? Yeah, for sure. So I guess it kind of all ties in because I do a lot of podcasting. I talk yeah. a lot on social media about body confidence, about body positivity. It's just been a natural progression, really, yeah. to be able to then spread that message further. And I'm just about to start working with an amazing charity called Milk Education, yeah. where I'll be going into schools, predominantly high schools, but other settings as well, like dance schools, um, you know, football teams, things like that, and speaking to young women about body confidence and about accepting themselves and normalizing bodies, which for me is something that I am so passionate about. Like it's yeah. something I feel really purpose-driven with yeah. because I so desperately wish someone had come in and spoken to me at that age. Yeah. You know, if you could have got hold of 13-year-old Soph yeah. and told her that she was enough and, and someone of influence coming in and talking to her about how her body wasn't the most important yeah. thing. I think that would have been really powerful and really important. So I guess my mission with that is to kind of go and speak to all these 13 yeah. year old Sophs and see what I can do with it. So yeah, the motivational speaking and really just trying to empower as many people as I can. I think it's the easiest way to do it, to reach yeah. big audiences yeah. and just make sure that this message is heard and there's lots of incredible people who are doing it uh, and it's it's important work. But I think you could span across all generations because yes. I think, you know, there's a lot in the media at the moment about um, midlife and menopause transition and obviously um, something that a lot of women struggle with at that point is weight gain that they've no control over and Absolutely. I actually think you could inspire across so many generations even though you're, you're much younger than that so and so your business if you like so you've got the motivational you've got the modeling and you've got like the educational piece who's in your team then so it can't just be all you know it's this. definitely <laughs> not just me it's absolutely not so moda pr are absolutely yeah. incredible and they handle all of my pr they also handle all of my social media management so yeah. i literally could not live without ash jen and tom yeah. they are just my backbone yeah. nothing, nothing would happen without them they're incredible yeah and so they focus on all of my social side all of the speed and then I also have um, Boss, who are my modeling agency, oh. and Zebedee and a couple of other smaller agencies in the UK as well, who handle all of the modeling side. Yeah. So it's very much not me. Yeah. <laughs> it's not just me. I show up and do my job, but I am... I'm a driving force, like I'm, I'm a bit of a grafter and yeah. I really like to work hard. I like to be out there and working hard, but it's so important to have the right people in your corner. And I think the right people who understand your mission as well. The reason that I love Moda so much is because they are PR with a purpose. So they won't take anyone on, a client, anyone who isn't 
purpose driven for them who yeah. they feel passionately about and for me that's really important it's not just about making money it's about making a difference yeah and I think I'm at an age now and at a point in my career where that's my main driver yeah. I know I can make money money's out there yeah. I attract money money's in abundance I'm, I'm good with that yeah it's about now how do I make a difference and how do I wake up every day and feel like I'm doing something that I not only feel passionate about but that really impacts people's lives. And what does your week look like? So do you have like <laughs> weekly meetings with them? Like, um, you know, how, do, how does that all happen? I mean, we communicate mainly by WhatsApp. When I turn my phone off flight mode after this, I'll have 15 notifications yeah, yeah, from yeah. it. constant, we are constantly yeah. back and forth, deliberating with different brands and agreeing what we're gonna be doing. Yeah. Um, we catch up We catch up all the time, basically. Yeah, yeah. And then with my modeling agencies, it's more just when the work's coming yeah, in. Yeah. But in terms of what my week looks like, it is so incredibly varied, it's really hard to say. Yeah. Yeah. I will usually have a couple of days of modeling. I'm usually doing some variety of podcast or speaking and then shooting social collaborations yeah. as well. So there's lots going on. I'm down in London a lot, yeah. travel a lot and it's fun. It's really varied, which I love. I don't think I could do a nine to five ever again. Well, I couldn't. And is there any routine around that? So no. <laughs> is there a time you get up? You know? yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, there is routine. I'm really... It's really important to me that I stick to certain routines, like yeah. going to the gym. I go to the gym four times a week. Yeah. My little walk to get my morning coffee at Gales, which yeah. is the new cafe yeah. in Wilms that we were talking about yeah. before. It's amazing. Shout out to Gales. <laughs> <laughs> my morning walk to get my coffee is just a really big part of my ritual. I don't yeah. take my phone and I just have that time for me, have that time to, like I spoke about before, focus on gratitude, yeah. set my intentions for the day and just take a breath. Yeah. Because I got into a really bad habit at one point of waking up, checking my phone. Yeah. And I would go to bed, check my phone, wake up, check my phone. And it was so exhausting because yeah. all I was doing was working. And now I've got into a space where no one's dying. You yeah. know, it's important work, but we're not curing cancer. Everything's yeah, yeah. okay. You can take a minute, you can take a breath. Yeah. You can go for your little walk and get your coffee. Yeah. You can go to the gym and work out without needing to reply to an email in between sets. Like, it's okay, take a yeah. breath. So I've got a lot of balance now, which is something that I had to work yeah. really hard towards for a long time because I had absolutely no balance. But now I'm in a space where those routines are non-negotiable for me. If I don't go to the gym, I'm a terrible person. Oh, me too, me too. <laughs> I, can't do, yeah. I just can't focus on anything else. Yeah. It's such a mental game for me going yeah. to the gym. And it's an interesting one actually, because I, when I did suffer with disordered eating, yeah. I only ever went to the gym, like I said before, to lose God. weight. Yeah. And now my whole focus, and I never ever thought I'd get to this place, but my whole focus is going to the gym to feel good mentally. Yeah. I go and lift weights and I do cardio and I do all these things that make me feel mentally incredible. Yeah. But I'm not taking my measurements. I yeah. don't know what I weigh. Yeah. I'm not focused on gains or like, I'm not looking in the mirror and like, have I got abs yet? Yeah, yeah. I just want to feel great. Yeah. I want to feel energized. I want to feel mentally in the best place that I can. Yeah. And I really encourage people to get in the gym for those reasons. Yeah. It's so important. Yeah. I think quite often it doesn't go hand in hand to promote body confidence and body positivity. Yeah. People people get it a bit mixed up that I'm trying to promote obesity or being unhealthy and I'm not. I'm trying to promote being comfortable in your body and having the respect for your body that you understand, that you love it enough, that you want to nourish it, that you want yeah. to move it. Because shaming people you can't shame people into loving themselves. You can't shame people in wanting to take care of themselves. That's something that's really, really important to me that we get that message clear. Yeah. That body positivity and body confidence is about helping people love themselves so they want to nourish their bodies, so they yeah. want to move their bodies, so that they are healthy and they do live long, healthy lives. Yeah. Well, look, like looking at you, it, it, 
in your face you look nourished like your skin's incredible so i presume you eat fairly healthy yeah, I do. um what what's kind of your principles around eating now and you know things like that because i can see it in your face like you're glowing thank so. you <laughs> i mean i've just been to bali for three weeks oh, so right, okay. the bali <laughs> but i did have an avo smash from gales yeah, this morning yeah. so <laughs> my principles are everything in moderation yeah. and i try to keep a good balance mm-hmm. but again i am very focused on not getting too I have to be very careful yeah. that I don't start counting calories or I don't start yeah. thinking well because I've eaten that now I have to go to the gym yeah I have to like you have to get watch. that bat out yeah. and whack that thought out of my yeah. head because that's just really not yeah. not a good space for me to go to so I just focus on nourishment yeah. I just focus on eating as clean as I can because yeah. it makes me feel incredible yeah and every so often I have a day where I eat absolute crap all yeah. day and I wake up the next day and I feel horrific you do it's like a hangover it's isn't awful. it like, yeah. I've got no energy I don't want to go to the gym I've got yeah. no motivation to do my work and like say I can see it in my face I can see it in my eyes I can I can tell yeah. that I've not been taking care of myself and then my body gives up as a result yeah. I've actually got endometriosis and I have to be very very careful that I keep on top of my nutrition because the minute I don't I went to Madrid last week for a few days and I ate all the red meat yeah. and I drank all the red wine and I had beer and I just didn't I didn't nourish my body yeah. and I had an almighty endometriosis attack so yeah. for me it's just another way of loving my body and making sure that I'm I'm being careful and I'm giving it the love that it needs and um just think just touching on endometriosis which is very underestimated illness I think unless you know someone that's had it um when did you get endometriosis then so I got my endo diagnosis two years ago oh really yeah Yeah. so endo is a really difficult one because you can't actually get a diagnosis until you have the surgery Ah, so it's one of those things that they think you've got it and then you go in for what's called your laparoscopy surgery to remove the endo and that's when you get your diagnosis so I got a diagnosis of stage three endometriosis which was really quite severe yeah Um, but I was really 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 lucky I lived in Australia at the time and that is important to note because the healthcare system out there is incredible but I when I first started to get symptoms within six months of my first symptoms went to the doctor and the symptoms were severe I mean I'd got to a point where I had blacked out on the bathroom floor in pain I'd been throwing up for about half an hour I honestly felt like someone had broken into my house and was stabbing me to death wow I was screaming sobbing and I've donated a liver like I've got yeah, fairly yeah. good pain tolerance yeah. this was like I would donate a liver every day of my life versus so having endometriosis yeah. it was it's, it's really really awful you cannot underestimate how painful it is yeah. and it doesn't let up I think that's the hardest thing so for me an average endometriosis attack which is what I call it because it feels like an attack yeah. usually lasts about four hours and it doesn't it's not like it comes on and then it's less strong and yeah. it come, it's just solid pain for four hours and then you are tender for four days so it's it's really awful and I'd gone to the doctors and explained these things and I was so incredibly lucky that the GP that I saw in Australia said I think you've got endometriosis because in the UK the average diagnosis takes eight years and the first GP that I spoke to said to me I think you've got endometriosis I'm going to put you in for a specialist referral so I was incredibly lucky and I think that's why I'm so passionate about making sure that women know that when something like that is going on in your body, it's not normal. Period pain that makes you, even if you're screwed up in a ball on the floor, is not normal. Something is wrong and you have to advocate for yourself. And if you're going to your GP and they're saying, 
no, you're fine, take some paracetamol, yeah. and you know it's not normal, you have to push for that specialist yeah. referral. You have to say to them, no, something is wrong and I want a referral. Yeah. You have to really fight for your own health. Because yeah. I was very lucky and within two months of that first GP um, meeting, I had my surgery. Yeah, and is that the laser surgery? No, so that's it's called the laparoscopy. Yeah, um, where they basically they remove, remove the endo. Yeah, so they yeah. go in via four different yeah. incisions. Yeah. Um, and remove as much as they can. Yeah, because I mentioned so my sister had that, and then eventually yes. post children had, had a hysterectomy. hysterectomy. Um, and yeah, they said it was like picking chewing gum. Like it, yeah, 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 yeah. So what's your so you 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 probably have to keep quite healthy anyway because if you liver do you yeah. anyway? Yeah. I was going to say, can you have a drink? But you can, but in moderation. Yeah. yeah. I mean, do I could you... drink anyone under the table before, so I can't drink like that yeah, anymore. But yeah. I can still drink like a normal yeah, person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I actually don't. I don't drink that much yeah. anymore because I feel. I think that's just been in my 30s. Yeah, I yeah. feel horrendous for like four days. Yeah. It's just not worth it. I think we're all more aware of it now anyway, aren't we? I don't think, you know, I think the sober culture is becoming much more prevalent. Anyway. Yeah, I think at some point I will 100% give up alcohol. Yeah. I'd say at the moment I probably have two hangovers a year. Yeah. And on each of those hangovers, I think. No, I'm never doing it I'm, again. But I think I'm nearly there. Yeah. I yeah. used to always think I'm never doing it again and then do it the next yeah, night. But yeah. now I think, no, I think I'm nearly there. Yeah. I'm giving up. Yeah. So we, we're nearly at a close, but a couple of things that have just popped up that I want to ask you about as well are, um, you've created this personal brand, which is Soph with Love. Yes. Um, you've got, for those people not watching on YouTube, a lovely pink tint <laughs> to your hair. How have you curated like the personal brand, like the look and feel when you look at Instagram, you know, and things like that? How did that, because it feels like it was quite organic. So how did that? It has been really organic. And people ask me this question and I sort of think it's just evolved over time. Yeah. If I had to start now and be like, okay, I'm going to design a brand, that's that's a very difficult 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 thing yeah. to do but when it's just you yeah i feel like if you stay true to yourself that's the most important thing you can do i'm a very visual person anyway i like yeah. things to be aesthetic but in terms of the content that i choose to put out there i don't put anything out there that doesn't feel really good to me yeah so i get so many brands come through every day and want to collaborate and we yeah. say no to 10 brands a day yeah. sometimes that just aren't the right fit for what we're trying to achieve and the message that we're trying yeah. to drive forward they're not the right fit yeah. and I think that's really important not just always chasing the money and actually really knowing that knowing your worth is important but yeah. also knowing that you've got to stay on mission and sometimes the big shiny dollars can be shiny yeah. but that's not the point because yeah. more will come if you just stay focused on yeah. your own lane. So I'm really, I'm really big on that. And yeah, in terms of the personal branding, I can never dye my hair blonde again. <laughs> <laughs> I've had it pink for eight years now. Yeah. It's a really big part of yeah. it. It's a big part of modeling. It's, yeah. um, it's what I'm recognized for really. It's, yeah. It is a big part of it and everything is pink. Everything is colorful. And I just try to keep it fun. I think that's the, the overwhelming message is yeah. like, can we all just lighten up a little bit yeah. and just have more fun? Because we take it so seriously. We get so caught up in the fact that we've got cellulite and we've got to go around the pool. Yeah. And none of us are getting out alive. Yeah. And this is what I try to remind people of. It's like, we are so preoccupied with our saggy boobs that we forget that this is it. This yeah. is life. Like, you yeah. don't get it again. Forget your boobs. Yeah. Go and live your life. Yeah, yeah. And you talked about brands there. Is there a dream brand you'd love to work with that you haven't yet? There's lots of brands that I am just starting to work with that are a little bit of a dream. So Simply Be is a really big one yeah. for me because they are so 
purpose-driven and mission-driven in the yeah. same direction as me. I did Marks and Spencers at the start of this year, which was oh, an wow. absolute dream. Amazing. And I would love to do, I think my biggest focus right now, I would love to do a big, in terms of modeling, a big window campaign for one of the big lingerie brands. So yeah. whether it be Ann Summers or Boo or lounge underwear, yeah. I think seeing my scar on a big campaign like that yeah. would mean an awful lot. It's something yeah. that I did a lot of in Australia, but I've not cracked in the UK oh, yet. So that's definitely a modeling goal. And just um, your just last like last few minute tips, um, top three skincare Ooh. tips. <laughs> Do you know what? I keep my skincare really, really simple. Yeah. And people are always amazed because I, I don't put too much into it. For me, nutrition is everything. Yeah. The minute my nutrition falls off, yeah. my skin is a mess. So that's yeah. number one. And water. And I know these yeah. are the most basic things in the world, but they are they are the keys for me. And they're the biggest thing that I notice. Yeah. Particularly as you get older and you've got fine lines coming through. If yeah. I am not hydrated, I can tell in my face. That's really, really important. Yeah. And then the, the main thing... <laughs> <laughs> the main thing that I cannot live without is a really good um, hyaluronic acid serum. So I I think it's so important to find products that work for you yeah. and work for your skin type. Yeah. And for me, that is something that my skin just like drinks it up. I've got really dry skin. Yeah. And I use a variety. People always say like, what products do you use? But yeah. there's so many that yeah. I have and so many that I use. But I think skin... And your your skincare and your body as well is one of the most important. Oh, give me things some tips on that on. because I, I'm always looking for like lovely. I mean, like, S- SPF is the key, and yeah. I think we don't focus enough on this in the UK. But living yeah. in Australia for such a long time, everyone is lathered in SPF 50 yeah. every day because otherwise you're going to yeah. age. So um, I use the ultraviolet SPFs, and they yeah. are one of my favorite products. Okay, I use them as an SPF. I use them as a primer and a base as well yeah. underneath my makeup, yeah. and I won't go a day without them. I absolutely love them. They're one of the best things to come to market yeah and i feel like we just need to be shouting more about spf because mm. that is the main thing that we can do to yeah. um, to help slow down aging yeah and um do you journal Mm-hmm. Yeah, and is that journaling. prompted journaling, free journaling? I do a bit of both. I find that if I'm incredibly stressed, then I need to use prompts yeah. because I can't clear my mind enough to yeah. be able to just write freely. Yeah. However, most days I will just journal what is in my head yeah. and I could not live without journaling. As yeah. much as I couldn't live without lifting weights, yeah. I could not live without getting everything out of my head and down yeah. onto paper. It yeah. is the most therapeutic thing. Yeah. And when people tell me they don't journal, I'm like, how do you function? Oh, I'm the same. Like, how? I, how? It's like... Um, <laughs> It's like a mindfulness for me. It's like yes. a meditation. Like yes. I have to. Have you got your a best friend lined up to um, burn your diaries? If anything, ever? oh, I no. have. <laughs> Please leave burn my diaries if anything happens. Yeah. <laughs> you can get a key yeah. from my next door yeah. neighbor. I'm just yeah. popping into a house. I need to burn her diaries yeah. immediately. <laughs> oh well, listen. Um, you've been an absolute delight to have on the podcast, and I, and I could definitely probably talk to you for a lot longer. Um, but um, the the final question, as we always do, is um, it's called anything is possible. What does anything is possible mean to you? I think knowing, like I said earlier, that we do just get this one shot and that your attitude towards your life is everything. If you have a good attitude and you know that you can wake up every day and you have the power to change the world and you have the power to go after your dreams and stop playing it small, then anything is possible. Brilliant. Oh, Sophie, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Give a big hug to Oscar from us. I will do. And let's post a little picture of him when we share the podcast. And where can people find you on social media? Sophie with love on Instagram and on TikTok. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you.
Have you been wondering what Anything Is Possible Live 2024 is all about? It's a 12-hour personal development experience from 8am to 8pm. Beyond the amazing content that is going to help you achieve your dreams, we have got mega brands, delicious food and drink, unique activations and much more. This is the sign you have been waiting for. It is time to invest in yourself and be part of something amazing. I really hope to see you there. Link in the bio to buy your tickets.